Welcome to Freedom Files. I'm your host, Ed Cox. I am a Texas attorney and have years of experience representing clients in prison before the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles. The purpose of this podcast is to show you how similar my clients are to you and me. You'll see they have families and friends, gifts and talents, careers, and hopes and dreams like the rest of us. They have successfully reintegrated into society, live productive, loving lives, and deserve to be accepted and treated like anyone else. Today, I'm talking to Chris Shanks, who is a talented and successful licensed chemical dependency counselor who lives fully in the present and has developed tools to help people struggling with addiction recover and lead productive lives. Chris has the unique experience of having been an addict himself and serving time in prison. I was struck by Chris's ingenuity, creativity, and passion for helping others. Chris is a gifted counselor, has helped several of my clients, and appeared with me before the Texas Parole Board. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, Chris, I am thrilled to be talking to you. Thank you. Thrilled to be talking to you. Yeah. So um, I guess where I would like to start is just by having you um, tell everybody about yourself and uh, what you do. Sure, sure. Um, so what I do, I'm a, I'm a substance abuse counselor here in Austin, Texas. I work uh, 100% telemed. So basically, I, I, I see clients through the internet all over Texas. So um, that's kind of what I do. And uh, and I was prepared to kind of go into what brought me to to this point, if you want. Yeah. So uh, where did you grow up? So I grew up in uh, Houston, Texas. I was uh, one. I was the middle child of three. You know, I had I I, I hate to characterize it in any way, shape or form. But uh, from all accounts, I was an unhappy child. My parents went through a divorce at two. And I don't know if that was the the cause of me being unsettled. But um, I was always unsettled. It showed in, in my report cards. It showed in all my discipline. You know, I had to sit at the front of the class and, uh, and, you know, all the way in elementary school, they pulled me up in front of the teacher and cause I was the class clown. And, you know, I was, uh, I guess you may have called me ADHD back then. I was, you know, I, I didn't, yeah, I couldn't conform. And I was, uh, I, I was a handful. <laughs> I was a handful. So was that just how you were or, you know, well, did- you know, yeah, I, I'll tell you this. I didn't, uh, you know, I was always a behavioral problem. And um, and to, to kind of fast forward it, uh, let's say I found drugs around, you know, so long ago. I think it was 12 or 13, maybe it's 13 or so. Um, and I, I know in junior high, I was I was drinking before getting on the school bus. I was smoking pot. I was at Spring Ranch Junior High and um I remember it was in the eighth grade towards the end of the year. Um, I got arrested. Uh, they pulled me. I think I was drunk in, in first or second period. And when they pulled me out, I had I had Valium, uh, Speed, and a joint in my pocket. And um, shit really hit the fan, so to speak, at that point. You know, because that's, uh, uh, that's where it all started right then. And, um, you know, and uh, I went from out of the frying pan into the fire. I, I got kicked out of school. I, uh, I came to live with my dad here in Austin, uh, my real father, and I progressively got worse. 
uh, and then started my uh, institutionalization before, you know, before they called them drug hospitals, I was, I was, I was put in, uh, it was, it was West Oak Psychiatric Institute. They kind of tricked me into going in there and, uh, you know, and so I was, that was the first rehab I was in and, and they kept me pretty doped up on Thorazine and you know, I remember breaking out of there twice and, uh, and that led to another hospital and that led to a, a boy's ranch out near Uvalde and I kept trying to escape. And um, I think, uh, you know, that put me in front of a judge uh, when I came home at, um, I think I was maybe 15. Um, and I, all I knew was they were going to send me to this place um, and I would go there or I would go to the streets. And this was kind of the early eighties, tough love. Right. And, um, and so what, basically what, what had happened, I remember a, a lady asking me questions and, and I agree. And then when I, when I'd left there, I found I was emancipated is what had happened. My minor disabilities were removed and I was in this place uh, called the shoulders. Uh, it was off Calhoun across from university of Houston and a really rough part of town back then. I don't know if it's still a rough part of town, um, Calhoun near McGregor. And it was, uh, it, it was rough. And, uh, there's about 250 convicts there in the early eighties before the prison system was expanded. And that's kind of where I, I started to, to learn about the streets. And I learned about, uh, uh, the life I didn't want to be involved in, you know? So that was, uh, there was, you know, and I guess you understand who ends up in halfway houses coming out of the penitentiary, people that don't have anywhere to go, kind of, uh, you know, the bottom of the barrel and, um, you know, their families don't want anything to do with them. And, uh, and so, you know, I don't think my parents meant for it to be as intense, but it was, uh, it was a rather intense experience. Um, I did have a homebound teacher there and, uh, I did, uh, stay in school. I know I ended up graduating a year late, but, um, yeah, at that time, you know, I had never, I, just to give you an example, I, I remember him whistling one time and I looked around to see who the girl was, right? And there's no girl. It was me, right? And so blonde-headed little boy, you know, and so uh, sexual assaults, violence, all that kind of stuff ensued, um, you know, and I, I, I think I was here about a year uh, and I finally moved out to live with my cousin and um, yeah, I... Uh, I was working at Randall's grocery store in Houston and flipping burgers and stuff and just staying stoned and uh, writing myself notes to get in and out of school because I would bring my court papers to school. And, you know, it was kind of a, like the Spicoli lifestyle, that fast times at Ridgemont High. It was just all right. one big joke back then, you know. And so um, but anyways, to speed it up, I, I, I kind of. um I had a chance to to jump back in with my family that lived in the nice side of town memorial and uh because of this girl i started dating and she was from there and we had known each other i guess in junior high and so i you know that i saw that white privilege train slowing down and you know and understanding what it is taking the bus and working you know for for three dollars and 33 cents an hour i was you know more than thrilled my stepfather said i could come back home if i would uh I would start working and um, and go to school half time. So, so that's what I did. You know, I didn't stop getting high. I just got a little bit more creative and, and a little bit more beer and a little bit less drugs. And um, you know, but the addiction never went away. It, it was still there. Yeah. So I and go with, ahead with the drugs and alcohol. If you look back on, you know, getting caught with Valium 
What grade was that? That was eighth grade. In eighth grade. So you're 14 years old. And and looking back on that, what, how did you get introduced to drugs and alcohol? I I got introduced through, uh, through a neighbor's older brother, uh, smoking pot. And then, you know, I, I had one of those moments, uh, these just ironic moments. I wouldn't even know what the word irony meant, but you know, I, uh, a friend, his uncle had some amphetamines. He was a truck driver, if I recall. And they were RJS 1000s, these little black mollies. And, and I took one and wow, this is the, the worst drug I'd ever done, right? And this amphetamine. And every single teacher had commented how wonderful my behavior was that day. They're like, what has gotten into you? And I'm like, <laughs> you only knew I'm just speeding my ass off, right? And I was just you know, and now we look back and we go, oh, amphetamines are used to treat that kind of, you know, that, that the hyperactivity or ADHD, whatever you want to describe it as. So, yeah, so that was uh, that that was quite uh, early on, you know, and uh, I know when I first started getting high is uh, is it was I was home. I was OK in my own skin uh, and, and you weren't going to take that away from me. You, you weren't going to take that freedom away from me. And, you know, and, you know, my stepfather and, and my mom, they did their best. I don't ever want to lay blame on them. Um, he was rather aggressive, uh, ex-Marine and, uh, you know, but when I would tell him to F off, you know, <laughs> I would trigger him, you know, and, yeah. and I, just nobody was going to take those drugs away from me because that's the first time I felt whole. So once you got introduced to drugs, then... How did you uh, get access to them and, and have them regularly? Wow. So, uh, you know, you, you, you try to pick up as much as you can afford, flip half of it and do the rest. And, you know, it's the old, you know, uh, buy a bag, sell as much as you can and smoke the rest kind of thing. You know, it's the, the fundamentals of business, you know, and uh, the street business. And, um, and that's what I did, you know. And uh, as a matter of fact, I think that's how I ran into my the girl I started dating and what have you. But when I went back to um, to live with them, I wasn't I wasn't selling pot or anything like that. I, I was drinking beer, and uh, and I actually I graduated a, a year late. I think it was in '88 from Memorial, uh, and was able. I took the SAT and was able to get into Sam Houston State. So uh, uh, that was my first time to Huntsville <laughs> and uh, right, right across from the walls unit. And uh, yeah. And so not sure, not too long after uh, my girlfriend uh, got pregnant with my oldest daughter right now and uh, my only daughter, but my oldest kid. And, um, and so we took off to, uh, to Dallas um, to back up when I was at, uh, back in high school, I was working, um, for an ads company, it was called Art Direction Services. It was, I just went down the yellow pages and I found something in the A's. I thought advertising sounded cool and I learned to shoot a photo stack camera. And so, uh, so long story short, I ended up getting a job with her family uh, and it was a, quite a large operation. And, um, and I worked third shift and, uh, and I rose up through the ranks and I started doing really well. I, um, this was back in the in the early days uh, before, right when Photoshop was coming out and we were using these mainframe computers and I was doing, uh, I would, believe it or not, I was using beer. I was buying these guys Heineken on third shift to train me uh, on the machine because I was kind of their assistant feeding film. And so I got trained on my own 
uh, through them and finally got a shot at the big time at running one of these systems. And that's when we did what, what is so common today is Photoshop. And then, uh, and as it progressed to Photoshop, I became uh, kind of a, wouldn't say a leader, but I really had a great reputation uh, for what I did. And I was earning money and, um, you know, and that led to flying around the country, uh, doing consulting. I bought a house. I had a boat. We had three kids within a couple of years. Uh, life was really taking off, you know, um, all the while drinking, you know. So what were your skills or gifts that allowed you to excel in that industry? Wow. You know, uh, I always considered myself as the hands for the art director or the creative director behind me. And so it was really kind of an intuitive sense of what they wanted. I had to know how to make it happen on the picture, you know, and to them, it was all magic. And so, I mean, we were doing this was a company that I believe we were doing like 21 million a year. We did Victoria's Secrets, all their in-store posters. I did Esquire magazine. When they changed the labels in 91 on the food, they ran through all these repackaging. I could walk up and down the grocery store and see my work everywhere, all over the magazine covers, the big ads, you know, because Dallas is a, a hub for advertising. So I, I, I really had it, uh, you know, it was going on at, at that time. And um, I came back. And that's in uh, your in your early twenties at that point. That's yeah, yeah. I'm still about 22, 23, 24. But my biggest problem was so much success so young. Um, you know, I, I where it all kind of took a turn was uh, I flew back from New York. I was doing something, I believe, for the Metropolitan Museum, and I I would go out and I would help companies set up stuff and transfer from from these mainframe systems down to these Macintoshes, these souped up $20,000 Macs at the time. And, uh, and I had a lot of skill at that. And I know one time I came back and when I got in the van, uh, the little minivan, uh, I could tell something was different with the wife. And, uh, and she started having an affair and um, it was with a good friend of mine. And uh, that was a little bit too much for me to handle uh, at that point. That was, um, you know, I don't blame her at all because I wasn't emotionally available and, you know, and we were kids having kids back then. And, but that, you know, when we talk about my using career, that's, that's where it all, uh, it went uh, south right there. And so at that, at that point, ahead. you've got three children. Yes, I have three children. Yes. And um, you're in your mid-20s. Yeah, 24, I believe. And, or 26, I don't know, I'm sure. And and so how did you handle the news from your wife? Yeah, so uh, I was devastated. Uh, that was probably, you know, that was um, it was one of those uh, traumatic, trauma-inducing events. Um, I, I also had a, a, what was called a little S-corp on the side, what was called multimedia back in the time, and we were doing digital video. So I was working three days a week doing my own thing, but also with a group of guys had... And we had made this interactive video thing. We'd flown out to California. We had the interactive touch screen and, and it was running off a of Macintosh. Uh, and it was one of the, the first of its kind. And um, at the same time I was working because I was in the very beginning of digital video. We were just able to do it small and render it up large. So uh, I had sent my friend out to, to find some musicians in town and, and just for shits and grins, did some music videos. And they got quoted at this astronomical rate. So I had this music video thing that was really interesting me right at that time. And um, 
And so what I remember was as soon as the divorce happened and I got an apartment, um, I started hanging out with all these rock and rollers in the Dallas scene. And, you know, and I went right back. I gravitated right back to the to the drugs. I was instantly back to cocaine, methamphetamine way before it was ice, uh, you know, and life in the fast lane started there. The thing that strikes me is that you have this incredible entrepreneurial gift that manifested itself from the time you were barely into your teens and you really achieved extraordinary success by your mid-20s. Yeah, you know, it it felt like a lot of it the right time at the right place, but it also felt like, you know, I just would stay hyper-focused on what I do best. And that's not unlike today. That that trade is probably still there in my counseling business, um, as well as, you know, I do have a private practice, so it's also the entrepreneurial side as well. But yeah, that's, you know, to, to just kind of catch it up, because I don't, I hate spending a lot of time on the past, but I'll say uh, that was, let's say, 94. And throughout those years, um, I, I never got any clean time. I, I, I bounced around, started working for agencies like the Richards Group, TM Advertising, used to be called Timberland McLean. I worked for big agencies, you know, in the, in, and I led this double life. I led this life where I knew I knew the, the worst of the worst in the motorcycle gangs in the in the drug dealing world. We didn't call it cartel back then, but you know, um, you know. And I, but I very much knew about that penitentiary lifestyle, and I was very much not going to conform to that. That's I never tattooed. I never pierced my ears. I pretty much stayed with the, uh, you know, with the idea that middle class white guys just don't get their car searched. You know, and I just, I can always wear the polo and what have you. And so I, I led a double life fairly successfully as you can until, until the heroin and the, and the harder drugs started to take over, um, you know, and that uh, I ended up just giving up on work many years later. Yeah. And so how did that progression go? I mean, how were you introduced to heroin uh the rock and roll scene as a matter of fact i was uh, i think the first time i snorted heroin i uh <laughs> it's a weird story i was uh, it was in the middle of the night somewhere and i was with a bunch of musicians and and they didn't want to be known guns and roses was famous for having drugs ruining their career around that time and um and the big the, the big players in the local music scene were uh, Pantera, uh, Vinny and his brother Dimebag. I believe they're both deceased now. Um, they were big in the scene, and so we were uh, we were at somebody's apartment, and there was probably a dozen or so people. And I had somebody had laid out a rail of of the they call Chiva, and I had snorted it. As I had snorted it, I saw panic on a look guy's face. <laughs> <laughs> looked over and the in walks Dimebag, the, the guitarist and Vinnie Paul from Pantera. And everybody wants to act like they're not on drugs because they're all trying to get signed or get their attention and, and what have you. So that was, uh, I believe that was one of the first times I did it. And um, yeah, so that was probably 94, 90, 94, 95. I don't, you know, it's a long time ago. Um, and, you know, and I didn't instantly go to shooting heroin. I, what we call, I chipped around it for a while. Uh, I was I was big into amphetamine back then. We called it crank, uh, you know, and uh, for some reason, I really I gravitated towards that. With the um, getting into the rock and roll scene and leading this double life, how do you recall feeling about yourself? Wow. 
so uh, <laughs> there, there, so to understand this, there wasn't uh, a whole lot of self-reflection. There was a, there was a real numbness. So we're talking about lifestyle, you know, um, back then where, you know, you sleep every two or three days, you know, you're up all the time, you know, until your body's just so fatigued. I, I learned later in my career to, to start using GHB as a, as a tool to knock myself down. It's the only thing that can knock down, especially when the ice came out and, and GHB became popular. Uh, I would force myself into sleeping, you know, so that I wouldn't be crazy because I, I went through all the crazy antics. I'd found myself jumping through windows, uh, you know, with semi-automatic weapons on an apartment building. I, you name it, you know, in those years, there's not much I didn't do or see, uh, you know, as far as the insanity of, of drugs and alcohol, I've been involved in so many bust and uh, investigations and what have you, but luckily, you know, back then I wasn't dealing, you know, and, uh, and so I never, I never got caught up in it. So when did the, uh, middle-class white guy in a polo shirt stop working for you? Wow. So I know that uh, I remember I married a girl from NA, a really sweet girl who's sober now too. And she, um, uh, her and I, I think we made a conscious decision to do what's called uh, uh, the marijuana maintenance plan. So there was this time where I guess I had gotten clean for a few months during all this, probably 20 years, I never achieved a year of sobriety. I think I had made eight months at one time. But during that time, we were doing the marijuana maintenance plan. <clears throat> and to me, I take it to extremes. I'm growing hydroponic in the walk-in closet. And, you know, and, uh, and that was around um, 2000. And uh, somebody comes over one of, you know, and I was selling a bunch. And, but everything was really chill. We were kind of hippie-ish. And, um, and somebody comes over and, and I had stopped the meth and I was just doing the, the weed and somebody came over and they had this new stuff called glass. I believe they called it at first before we called it ice. And, um, and I'd only heard about it on the internet and it was supposedly in the Orient and they had it in Hawaii. And, uh, and I really wanted to see, I was like, what, let me see this. <laughs> and so they, they, just, they took it out and and they put it in a little pipe and sure enough, you didn't have to burn off all the gross stuff. It was totally different than the crank and, and it was easy to smoke and taste good and boom, off to the races. Uh, I was instantly, you know, uh, back on hard drugs again. I think that was around, it was around 2001 um, because I remember I was at TM advertising and that 9-11 happened and um they had about a hundred people were laid off on the list. And on the flip side of that list, one person got a raise and that was me. Like that's how well my career was going. I was really moving up in the ranks, you know, uh, because our largest client at that time was American airlines. So you could see why the layoffs happened. Um, so it was, you know, I, I was doing well, but I think I dropped about 50 pounds or 60 pounds when ice came out, you know, I went to that Skeletor and, uh, and soon, of course, they had to let me go because I, I was just, you know, I was out there. And so how how at the age of 33, going through all of this, did you manage to stay on top of your game in the ad industry and succeed like you did? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
You know, I I would say I didn't. <laughs> I would say I was a shell of my former self. The people that knew me in the retouching and the graphic arts industry, uh, they would always talk about I, I was kind of a, a shame, a waste, you know, a shame of ta- it was a waste of talent. The people in my other lives, the double life, thought I was a baller, thought I had it going on. I, I did everything in those years from I had call girls that would that would run the people out of my townhouse or whatever at 2 a.m. So and provide me with the GHB so I could knock out, go to sleep. And then, you know, and a lot of times I was working consulting and because I had the skills to go into a company and and save them several hundred thousand dollars by replacing, uh, you know, an entire pre-press organization they used to use. So I, I had some companies that knew I had that problem, but they still they wanted me to do what I did, you know, and I, I knew it like the back of my hand. So I was able to do that um, until until really my brain just started just going on overload. I really when I say I went crazy, I mean, uh, you know. Uh, I was a shell of a person uh, because I never ran out of drugs. And so, uh, you know, it, it, the, all those years were really a blur. I, I can remember a lot of the stories and stuff. I, you know, when I talk in rehabs, I, I don't like going into details because sometimes it feels like I'm glamorizing it. There's anything but glamor. You know, I alienated my children. I was a horrible father. Uh, you know, two of my kids and my boys still don't talk to me. I, I, I left a wake of destruction in my past. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was not glamorous by any stretch. And so when did the law catch up with you? The law caught up with me in, uh, on, um, April 7th, 2009. Um, I had tried to get sober. I had a new girlfriend, um, and Jenny, and Jenny and I had a child. And when that child was born, I, I kind of had this feeling like the universe really said the gig was up. Like, and I really felt kind of a deep conviction uh, because I was able to kind of maintain by understanding, you know, cause and effect and staying away from the direct drug dealing, kind of brokering people, these big dealers and stuff. And, um, you know, I, I was the right person at the right time, you know, and I always, always knew the right people, but I never ended up going down on a lot of drug investigations. Um, I should have known because several times I had been, uh, I had been pulled over or there was this crazy incident that ended up on the news, uh, of something that's crazy, uh, you know, and, um, they didn't arrest me for that. And they didn't arrest me in this hotel. So Dallas didn't arrest me twice. And it didn't occur to me why they were letting me go. (laughs) Come to find out I had what was called a do not detain. Uh, I was under a three month investigation and, um, you know, and they, and the Plano narcotics uh, task force was, was on my case. They, they were on a lady had, uh, uh, my best friend, of course, was a dealer and um, a lady had uh, she had been caught and th- they threatened to take her children away from her. And so she introduced uh, a narcotics agents kind of into our a narcotics agent into our circle. And, um, you know, I was a little wary of them at first. So I, I would always have a friend of mine, you know, which they call my employee, you know, it looks horrible on the court documents. <laughs> you know, it was not, they call it organized. It was not organized. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is just a guy. I'm too lazy to get off the couch because of heroin and stuff. So I let other people run my errands, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. And uh, so, uh, yeah. So that came in and, uh, you know, uh, and it culminated with, um, I think I had been set up by somebody uh, 
I guess six months prior in Irving, I, I, I went to a hotel and I walked into a, just a trap uh, and they caught my personal GHB on me, which was, you know, and they weighed the liquid. So it was like 384 grams of GHB. Yeah. And so I hired this attorney, this guy named Tom that, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, uh, I was, uh, was trying to actually raise money, uh, for that, for my, for my case. And so, uh, when the opportunity came along to do this, um, it was a $10,000 deal on ecstasy. Um, I kind of jumped at it. You know, I normally strayed away from that. And in hindsight, I don't know how I didn't see it. A lot of my friends were like, how, how come you didn't see this? You know, I had avoided these types of things in the past, could see them clearly. And, um, and I didn't see it. And I, and I'm so happy I didn't, you know, how fate works out. But, uh, so on April 7th, uh, I had a crown Royal bag of, of ecstasy that wouldn't close. And, uh, my friend and I had pulled up in a, in a pickup truck and, uh, we were going to take the, uh, the guy that was going to buy it to a, to a hotel. I didn't obviously want to tell him where we were going. So I was going to have him follow us. And he, he wanted us to come all the way up to Trinity mills, which, you know, which is, uh, that's crazy. So we go all the way up, which is the edge of Collin County, <laughs> and, you know, and, uh, and as we're about to pull out, uh, a horn goes off at the racetrack we were at, whatever the gas station. And um, and all these people that were, I thought, getting in and out of their car, these civilians, all turned around with these massive weapons, <laughs> screaming. And, you know, and, and, and my friend put his hand on that gear shift, and I am so glad he didn't hit reverse. Because not only a couple of weeks later, they ended up that same task force ended up shooting a kid, uh, you know, and so I was, you know, uh, they pulled me out. I had done heroin probably 20 or 30 minutes before then. And uh, yeah, and I counted, I think, 13 cops and they're high fiving saying we finally got you or something. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's like what's happening? Uh, yeah. I, I was in a daze, you know, and uh, so that's that's how the law caught up with me. And so what? charge did they bring against you when i got to the magistrate the the good news was is i had like six or seven traffic tickets and they threw those out <laughs> and then uh they came at me with uh, a bunch of first degree second degree and third degree felonies uh it was seven hundred thousand dollar bond and then i had a fifty thousand dollar bond out of dallas for the ghb i had possession of methamphetamine the possession of heroin the possession of ice uh uh, it was, you know, I, 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 every year I posted on Facebook on my sobriety day, <laughs> I, put, I blur out some of the names and stuff. I post that police report, but there was quite, I think there were six felonies altogether. And so uh, th they were not interested in me getting probation, although these were my first felonies. They, they told me it was not going to happen. They, they offered, you know, that night for me to, to work my way out of it. And it just, that's always felt wrong to me at, at, at a core level. And so I kind of just laughed at the guy. I was like, there's no way. And, and then the detective said, well, that's fine. Cause we don't need it anyway. <laughs> We've got you. And I was like, well, cool. You know? So, so I didn't cut a deal or anything like that. And um, so, yeah, I was in Collin County for a while. And so you said that you were working with Tom and um, when you mm -hmm. got this multitude of cases then were you represented or did you, uh, how did you handle all No, those I cases? wasn't. So that was, so I think Tom had, uh, you know, it had to recuse himself for, uh, you know, cause I, I didn't, that next morning I was supposed to show up in court, pay Tom and, and, and you know, set off the date or whatever for the GHB case. So obviously I didn't make that court case. 
and that's just, uh, I, I got appointed, a, a court appointed attorney, but in Collin County at that time, I'm not sure if they still do, but they, they were rotating, you know, everybody had to like do their time. So I ended up with a, a very talented lady, you know, and, um, and she, she shot straight with me, uh, about how I am going penitentiary and, we talked about some of the cases. It's just like, oh, you got a little play here and a little play here, but you have no play because if you try that, they're going to throw the book at you on these other ones. And, uh, you know, and so the best thing was we could try to to wait them out and, and cut a deal. And, you know, and in hindsight, I think I, I kind of got played because um, <laughs> because we kept trying to come down from 20 or 15 or, you know, we kept trying to come down and uh, I signed off on a 10. Right. But right, that judge raised his gavel and he said, you know, I'm about to sentence you to 36 or 37 years. And I thought I'd been punked right there. So I was like, what? I looked over at Dawn, the attorney, and she's like, yeah, she says, your honor, stop. And she pulled me aside. And she goes, no, it's still going to run underneath just a 10. Right. But when, when he announced how they were all cumulative, I thought I was I thought I was a goner. You know? Wow. Yeah, it, it was rather scary. I'll tell you the a pivotal moment in my life happened in, in Collin County there. Um, I had a cellmate that was, had some, you know, was a little bit younger Hispanic kid and he, uh, he was in some kind of violent crime. And, uh, but anyways, he was trying to be a tough guy or something and we were both stressed and I was in no mood for it. And, um, and so we got in a fight in the cell and, and I ended up, putting them in a in a rear naked choke and and i guess the noise and the commotion the guards saw that and uh, and so i got sent to solitary confinement for that for 30 days and um and so on my way in uh i had i, I used to sell drugs to this guy this kind of hippie dude and he was uh, talking to me raving about this spiritual guy uh you know this eckhart tolle and uh in that book was on the on the tabletop in there and i saw it was called the new earth and so it said spiritual on the spine cover. And that was, uh, you were allowed to have a spiritual book and no, no pleasure reading. So I grabbed that and the boss man, let me take it in. And uh, in that book, um, for those 30 days, uh, you know, 23 hours a day, reading that book, reading it, reading it, rereading it, a light went off. I was like, wow, there, there is something here. I'm not the voice in my head and all, all the things that Eckhart Tolle teaches. And, and that really... Um, it really had a big impact. It, it more had a, a cognitive impact. It really hadn't had a chance to settle from my head down to my heart or my actions. And, um, but it did, it did progress when I went to the penitentiary, um, you know, and I, I got hooked up with some, uh, some Buddhist organizations and other Eastern religion organizations that would, uh, that would write me, um, and send books and stuff. And, and we have really great uh, libraries in, uh, in the TDC units I was in. And so what did you read in Tolle's book that yeah. really impacted you? Yeah. The, you know, I think the, the first part that, that, that I am not my thoughts, they're only an aspect of me, right? That I am not this voice in the head and how to connect with the body and the breath and watch the thoughts, you know? And so as I, I was like blown away by that, you know, in, in Buddhism, they call that mindfulness of the mind, you know, mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of the mind. Um, and so Tole has a very succinct way of, of laying that stuff out. And, um, you know, and I, I then sent off for his uh, Power of Now book. And um, uh, when I was at the Bradshaw unit, 
and it didn't, you know, it didn't take right away. I ended up getting in a fight there at the Bradshaw unit. Uh, you know, I, I kind of had to fight just because of the nature of, if you understand the penitentiary, if, if I didn't fight this guy, the, the white guys would have beat me up kind of situation. And, and, um, you know, situations I never found myself in the, the other years that I remained in the penitentiary as I changed, uh, the world started changing around me. The world reflected back to me a completely different penitentiary, you know, as I internally changed. Wow. I uh, read somewhere that uh, Tole was asked about writing A New Earth, and um, he said, I didn't want to write a book. I had this sense that a book wanted to be written. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's a connection through presence, right? A connection with his intuition, a connection with that small, still voice, the impulse, you know? And yeah, that's kind of, you know, when I, when I did, uh, when I got out, that's kind of the way I felt about counseling. I didn't really want to be in the recovery world. I, I had a really bad taste, you know, but I, I felt the draw to it. Yeah, and, and so what did you come to see that led to this shift, not only in your mind, but it, it <laughs> sounds like you had this tremendous shift in your whole existence, both internally and externally. Sure, sure. I So I started meditating. Um, you know, I started meditating. Uh, I, I bounced around from five prisons. I had to go back on a bench warrant to Dallas. And then and then they started shipping me out uh, Abilene and then, and then uh, Tulia and then uh, upwards. And then uh, because I had made a trustee status. And so um, and it, they they shipped me to a sex offender unit where they they couldn't have so I, I ended up working for the warden because you can't be around free world people if you're a sex offender so I ended up getting stuck on these weird units like that and uh, and so while I was there you know I, I kept to myself and I read and I kept to myself and I read and I meditated and the more I practiced uh, these these principles and these insights into noticing the chatter in my mind. And noticing what the sense of self, the ego, the conditioned mind, and who I thought Chris was, this, this mental construct, you know, uh, and, and I saw how people were always reinforcing it, you know, and I saw how violence started in the very beginning. It starts with playing around. First, it starts with identifying, I'm a drug dealer, or I'm this, or I'm that. Uh, and then they, you know, and then they compare, and then they, they compare stories, and then they start joking around a little bit more. And you know, and that, that's the beginnings of the difference of people. You know, when I don't present that, when I never told people my story, except just, you know, in true communication, when I never put something out there, I was never offensive to people, you know, and I just, I didn't care to. I, I saw what was happening. I saw how, you know, this, this mental construct of who I think I am how I had always projected to people. I wanted them to know I'm not just a, a low level street dealer or I was a graphic artist or I, you know, I knew famous people or something, you know, all of that is this mental construct. And when I, when I stopped uh, propping that up and just started being in the moment and just started to relate to people from the heart, from where I was, you know, and, and not really try to, uh, to force a reality on them it's really hard to put into a few words because the practice touches every aspect of your life. So, you know? so what do you think it is about meditation that allowed you to develop or cultivate this authentic presence? Yeah. 
Well, you know, through meditation, um, you start to see everything that you're not, you know. So, you, you know, as, as you focus in on the breath, you know, and you really try to pay attention to the breath, the first thing, the default mode network of the human brain, the chatter mind is going to start telling, oh, no, did you did you email so-and-so? Did you do that? Did you? You know, uh, you know, and that's actually going on all day long. You know, we're having between, they say, twenty and 40,000 thoughts. It's happening all the time. We just don't notice it. We're in this hypnotic relationship with the chatter in our mind. But when we meditate, we take attention and we direct it into the body and it exposes, I, I always call them those hidden puppet strings of the mind. So you see how the mind is controlling you. The mind, you know, it, that's the basis for our psychological patterns. So, of course... I, if I followed my mind, I was going to have the same psychological patterns, which were going to end up to the same fears, the same desires, and the same outcomes I'd had all my life. But when I kind of cut those puppet strings and I stopped doing that, that's what gave me this magical ability to change my psychology. But, you know, but I had to notice the root of it. And the root was the identification with the stories in my mind. I believed them to be real. They still talk, but I can laugh at them. So what did you find yourself coming to believe or anchor yourself in about yourself that was new yeah. and different? Yeah, that's a great question. So that's a, that's a great word there. Uh, in the West, we, we, we value um, beliefs. And, you know, uh, if there's one thing that I don't value is beliefs, right? Because beliefs are stories that I've told myself so much that I believe them to be true. And the problem that I've seen in my life and life of my clients is we're setting up that paradigm of believing stuff. Well, we want to believe something positive because believing positive makes me feel positive. Uh, but believing negative makes me feel negative. The problem, you know, believing positive makes me feel inspired. But the problem, and we see this, that upwards of 80% of our thoughts will be negative or critical in nature. No matter how much we want to stay with the good story, it ends up going to the bad story. So what we learn, you know, in, in Buddhism or in other Eastern practices is what's going on behind beliefs, you know? And we, we, we try, you know, in, in this practice, the stuff that I practice is non-dual mindfulness. We try to identify what it is to be conscious and aware behind the stories. What's that like? You know, the dog knows what it's like. The little infant knows what it's like. They're not caught up in their prefrontal cortex, their stories of how it needs to be, how it should be that, you know, and so that's kind of a, you know, as a foundation, that's what changed, you know, and it's not so much a belief, you know, it's not that beliefs are bad in the normal way of believing and feeling inspired is great, but this process is more experiential, you know, so there's, there's a difference between the explanation and the experience, right? And so I, I really don't mess around much with beliefs. Um, they don't they don't matter so much to me. Yeah. And um, there are times when I meditate that I have grown frustrated at the thoughts in the midst of having a desire to focus on my breathing. Sure. Or sure. what have you. And I, sure. I you know, then I, 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 I read, you know, what you resist persists. And so getting upset or frustrated about it uh, right. only right. seemed to exacerbate the right. <laughs> presence of these thoughts. And so once you get behind or beyond uh, 
um, uh-huh. that what did you find there? Well, first of all, I want to give you a little tip here because that is the most common uh, problem in meditation, probably why most people, the overwhelming majority, give up, right? And so to understand the default mode network of the human brain, the chatter, we're in it. And within a millisecond, we can switch into what's called the task positive mode of the brain, right? And so that's when you're about to hit a baseball, when you're doing an activity, when you're in task positive mode, you're not thinking about who you should email right? And you're not thinking about that chatter. So the trick here is to feel the sensations of the body, keep grabbing sensations with an open curiosity and feel them as intensely as you're about to hit a baseball. When you really ground into the body, you're switching into task positive mode. And so, you know, even though some of the thoughts will still be coming through, it's almost as if Um, the body's more alive here. And now the brain is an aspect of it. The chatter is an aspect, but it's the, you know, these are, these five senses are primary. And they used to in ancient Sanskrit called the thoughts, the mind, the sixth sense, right? And so, you know, normally we're just honed in on the head. We're just honed in what we would call identified with the thoughts. And so what we're doing, we come in and we try to balance. We do it all day long. <clears throat> or I mean, we should be doing it if we, you know, if we practice this, we, you know, in this moment, as you're sitting there, you can start to feel your, your body in the chair and the flatness of your feet and the expansion. And you can pay attention to that and still hear the words I'm saying and still have the thoughts going, but we start to balance our awareness and our attention, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. That That's a great tip. Um, yeah. So, you are meditating in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, Did there come a point when you began to conceive what your life might be upon your release? Not a clue, not a clue. And I didn't, you know, I don't, I, I, I have been training for those years to not go to the future. I stayed in the present moment, you know, the future, because the future if I went to the future, I, I wanted to, to be with girls. I wanted Chinese food. I wanted a picture of my boy that I hadn't seen in four years. You know, I, I wanted these things. But if I stayed with the present moment, you know, I, I finally made it to, you know, in Huntsville, I made it to a trustee farm at the Ellis unit. And I have a fan. I have a radio. We have a softball league. I have volleyball. You know, if I stayed in this present moment, it's fine. It's just as it is. It doesn't need a label, a judgment. It doesn't need anything. It is more than enough. But if I go to and start playing that game, whether it's positive or negative, and put too much attention to over here, you, you know, invariably it's going to go to what I want, what I need, what I should have, and, and I start to suffer. But if I keep my primary focus on what's happening in the moment and without comparing it to how it could be or should be, it's just as it is, and it's fine. You know? That reminds me of... Um the uh, Stockdale paradigm. And it seems to me that Admiral Stockdale survived in uh, internment camp in Vietnam by having faith, but staying in the present. Sure. And I remember uh, hearing that the soldiers who either didn't make it or had the most difficult time were often the most optimistic who thought, 
well, we're going to get home in three months or we're going to be home this Christmas. Uh And it seemed that Stockdale was able to get through that experience by staying in the present. Yeah. That's something I learned in prison. Uh, You know, the first time I heard this statement, uh, it really baffled me, but uh, you know, hope is my enemy, you know? And I was like, what? (laughs) That's kind of an advanced part of the teeth, but hope is a, is a subtle denial that this present moment is all you need. Hope is telling you the next moment is going to be better than this present moment, right? And so we set up, we're setting up the formula again, you know, that, that soon when I have this, it's going to be better. And you're denying the possibility of how that life is complete in this moment. Right. Without the analyzing. I always say, look at your dog. Does he look like (laughs) you can see their beast? You know, you can see the other animals on this planet in the moment, you know? Yeah. And uh, I remember hearing somebody talk about life as empty and meaningless. And I thought that was so fatalistic Mm. and depressing initially. But as we discussed it more, it really opened up possibilities. Sure, sure. In terms of uh, being and not sure. having attachment to things sure. as necessary or essential to our existence. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 a very good point. You know. Yeah. When we, when we when we give meaning, we're putting our own construct of what, how, you know, uh, my idea of meaning is somebody else's idea. But that's just another story trying to fit the story of our life into it to make sense. You know, it just is as it is, you know, and experientially, a lot of this stuff I'm talking about is, you know, still as we talk, it's at the conceptual level. But when it comes down to the experiential level, you know, through meditation and through mindfulness, when you back up, you know, and not become the head, but become the witnessing presence, the consciousness that, you know, and you find that clear open space of consciousness, you're still able to move about, but not so attached to the things, you know, and very, I'm very on guard of how my mind wants to compare, wants to analyze, wants to give meaning, wants to set goals, you know, and I still do that because I, um, I operate in a relative world, but I have very much less attachment than I used to have to those kinds of things. When you were moving around and serving time in prison, uh, mm-hmm. what things did you learn that in hindsight you wish somebody would have told you, Chris, you know, here are some essential things to understand and choose as you go into the system? <laughs> Don't go back on a bench warrant. <laughs> <I know that>. <laughs> <laughs> Because they changed the law, that cost me three thousand dollars to go back, you know, and they took it out of my commissary money. Uh, uh, you know, if I any advice, um, you know, I, I I remember when I did get there, I had the intention that that I knew that this this um, Eckhart Tolle guy had something, and I knew I was going to find out what it was, uh, and that's why I researched so much of Eastern religions and and. Um, in different ways, I really wanted to, I wanted to leave, you know, uh, those years, um, with something in hand, you know, and, uh, 
Yeah, I don't, you know, I, for blanket general advice, you know, it would be stay to yourself, you know, <laughs> stay to your, you don't have to join a gang, you don't have to roll with anybody. Prison is the same as the outside world as far as the, the our minds are concerned. The ego just reconstructs itself, you know, instead of money, it's stamps or soups, you know, uh, and, and, you know, instead of families, they become cliques and gangs and, you know, and, and so it's, you know, it's its own little world in there. Yeah. And I, I would also, uh, yeah, I would, I would just tell people, you know, I would want them to learn what I, what I teach because that's where the true freedom is on the inside. You know, if you can get, you can get free in here, uh, your outside surroundings truly don't matter. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm constantly, you know, like all the, I wasn't, but people are constantly in prison wanting to be on the outside as if they were happy on the outside. <laughs> You're going to attain that same level, that state of consciousness that you have on the inside out there. As soon as you get out, it's going to be, now I need a job. Now I need more money. Now I need a girl. Now I need a car. It's going to be the same desire constantly. It's always going to be something over there that's going to make me at peace. So at what point did you come to believe that you could be of great service as a chemical dependency counselor. Hmm. So I had been um, writing the, the Austin Zen Center. Uh, you know, I, I got this list of all these organizations and they would send books and the Austin Zen Center had a pen pal program and um, which I later was doing when I was going to school. I was also doing the pen pal for them. You know, uh, so when I got out, I, I saw that they had a recovery meeting, an AA meeting had just started there. And I went, I believe the first Sunday uh, that I got out of prison and um, I had no intentions of being a counselor. I had no intentions. I, I really had a bad taste for the 12-step recovery world because I had failed at it so many times. It's not that it wasn't their problem. It was mine. One thing just led to another. I think I was sharing so much uh, and people were impressed with my my knowledge and, and, and what have you of addiction and, and, and how to kind of put these teachings in a way that I could relate them to people. Uh, and then somebody suggested that uh, and they said that, you know, you could go to Austin Community College, since you didn't have any income, you could qualify for a Pell Grant. And I was like, what, what? You know, so, cause I got out and I didn't have anything. I had, a, you know, some, some spiritual books and a coffee cup, you know, and, uh, and stayed in my dad's garage, you know, at 46 years old. Uh, and uh, so I, I explored that idea and it felt right. And um, yeah, and I, and I started in on that path. And so I want to back up a little bit and ask you, in hindsight, how do you believe you earned the privilege of early release? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, so I didn't earn the privilege of early release. I got, um, and this is why I said I think I got tricked, because I really feel like they wrote something on my jacket, you know, um, because I got denied parole three or four times. I can't even remember. Uh, I would never get sick in prison except about a week before my parole hearing and about a week after I was, you know, something about my immune system was just always spot on because I was okay internally and I never got the sniffles. The entire cell block could be sick, not me, but I got denied. I got denied at the Middleton unit. I got denied at the Tulia unit. I got denied in Huntsville. And then I got denied again. I got a serve all. So I had to do 
four years and two months and two weeks with my good time and my work time equaled 10 years. And that was what my sentence was running concurrent under. So, um, you know, because I'm not a, a violent threat to society, they had to release me on my short way. So, um, so I was on what's called mandatory supervision uh, until uh, 2019, you know, so I didn't, <laughs> they had to let me go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, did you interview with institutional parole officers uh, sure. when you were eligible? And I, what was that experience like? Uh, it was a, a rubber stamp experience. It was like, do you have anything to show? Do you have any classes? Do you're at next and go, you know, and, and then wait to hear your thing, you know, and always ask people at my job, whatever job I was at to check the computer and, and, you know, and, and as much as I, my practice, you know, I, I'm by no means am I enlightened by no means was I then, you know, I was probably more at peace because I'm more distracted these days. But I found myself, uh, that was the times that I did find myself slipping into the future and what could be. Oh, my God, the whole world can change in three months or is another year. But you know what? By that last one, I I could give a shit. <laughs> I was like, I know where this is going. I don't care anymore. I just don't care. I'm staying right here with what is. I don't care. You know, um, you know, and it may have been because the amount of drugs and it maybe I look like some big drug dealer and I, I don't know what it was. Uh, but it is funny because I ended up doing about the amount of time I would have had to do on 20 years, definitely on a 15 year <laughs> that is what Collin County was wanting to give me. They give right. me a 10, but I end up serving four years, which is a, a quite a long time on a first time on a 10 nonviolent. Wow. How do you think you earn trustee status? Uh, whatever the random selection of the computer was, I, I, you know, I, I, I've come to understand that, you know, unless they're high profile cases or unless you have somebody talented like you intervening on somebody's behalf. Uh, and, and we should mention your good work in here because you are amazing at that. Uh, I have firsthand knowledge twice of how you've done that for friends. You know, you seem to be falling through a database. You know, you just seem to be falling in line. Uh, it seems that, you know, they can't they can't build new prisons. Right. And so it's an inventory control problem. They're not stopping the arrest. And so it's this inventory thing. You got this many products coming in and this many beds. And so, you know, we're letting this many go. And, and, and I know they decide upon the lines. You know, there's factors like have you have you ever violated probation? That's a strike against you because they want you to stay out for a few years because they know statistically that upwards of 80 something percent are going to reoffend within five years. So they really just want you to stay out close to that five years as long as possible so they can make way for these new guys coming in. So it just seems like a massive, uh, you know, inventory control problem with very little personal attention to who deserves and who doesn't. That doesn't seem to be the case when you hire a talented parole attorney, you seem to get their attention. You know, but other than that, I don't think they paid any attention to my case. It just didn't feel like. Well, with never asked me. with um, 21 board members, the parole board um, considers between 77,000 and 80,000 cases per year. Yeah. 
So it's a pretty daunting task. And it's hard to think that they read a little short story or a couple paragraphs on each one of those and ponder them over. It just feels like it's, you know, when they're letting go a lot, they're letting go a lot, you know, and seeing that every, you know, you always keep your pulse on what the, uh, the district that you're in, uh, in, in, in the system. And you can see in these times, wow, they're letting everybody go. Boom, boom, boom. They're letting them go, go. And then, then it just contracts and they're letting nobody go. They're, everybody's getting set off. And then the, for no reason, boom, 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 they're letting them all go. And when you look at it from a big deal, you're like, oh, you can kind of see, you know, they can't build more prisons and shrink them uh, according to the crime rates or the arrest. So it's an inventory thing. So there, it seems like they get a little bit more lax, a little bit more strict, a little bit more lax, you know, and I'm sure that's done on a database. Yeah. And, and so um, you get to your mandatory supervision date and you <laughs> know you're getting released. Oh, yeah. And wow. um, what was it like? King of the world. <laughs> King of the world. You know, it was crazy. So I was at the uh, in Huntsville at the Ellis unit and uh, – you know, I had, I was really stunned because I remember the night they came and threw the red chain bag. That is like, that is like, that, that beats an Oscar or an Emmy. That, that beats any award. When you see that red chain bag thrown on your bunk, you're like, <laughs> you know, the only thing <laughs> second to that is when you get the notification, they can still take it. But then when they draw your, your blood for your DNA, they rarely take it. When they throw that chain bag, you're all but out the door. And, you know, when they threw that chain bag down, I was just, you know, and I had so many people coming up and hugging me. I never felt that close to all these people, you know, but I was nice to everybody. I was polite. I really didn't like hearing their stories, but I would nod and stuff on my way back to, to my bunk. And so I had all these guys that felt really close to me. And that really blew my mind, you know, that these people that, that I couldn't remember half their certainly don't remember their names now, how close they felt to me. And that really struck me that night. Like, wow, I couldn't believe how popular that I was because I never considered that. Yeah, that was, that was amazing. And, um, you know, and I, it was kind of, it was kind of weird. I, I took that chain bus back to the, to the walls unit and that night, uh, I could see out across the parking lot in my old dormitory 20 something years ago. And I'm like, wow, life has really changed. I never thought I would be over here. You know, we used to, we used to watch all the news cameras gather around for the executions and stuff, you know? Uh, so there I was, you know, and, and that was, uh, that day, the next day was, uh, it was amazing because the week before it, it is like, you were a lottery winner. You were, you were famous. You're walking on marshmallows. Everything is soft. Everything is chill because it's happening. You're going, you know, you feel on top of the world. Uh, and the excitement, the, 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 just all of it. The, the easiest chain bus, you know, ride there is. And chain bus rides are one of the most oh, horrific things in the world on well, that bluebird. But that was so easy. Everybody's happy because we're all getting out. And you put on those donated clothes, uh, you know, and you look silly <laughs> like an old hobo with clothes that don't fit. And you walk through that gate. And it's probably, I can't remember, it's 90 feet or something. And I instantly went from on top of the world 
to cross that gate and I'm 46 years old with six felonies <laughs> unemployed, you know, my chances, you just, the dynamics just change like that, you know, <laughs> like, oh shit, you know, I went from way up here to now nobody wants to hire me. I couldn't get a job, you know, it was, uh, you know, it's, it was a struggle, you know, but, it, you know, I just stayed with what is and, and everything worked out, you know. So uh, did somebody pick you up? Yeah, my father and and my stepmother, uh, they 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 came down and uh, and uh, yeah, I remember we uh, they asked me what I wanted to eat and I was like, I said Chinese food buffet. <laughs> so I've been dreaming of this for years. I, said, I just want crappy Chinese food and I want to see it all and I want to get one of everything, you know? Because yeah, because I've been eating prison food for a long time. That's terrific. And yeah. so, how did you? overcome the obstacle that having felony convictions on your record is to getting back in the world. Yeah, that was, uh, that was, you know, <laughs> I, uh, nobody would give me a chance. You know, I, I was taught a long time ago uh, by one of my bosses, his name was Jack and Jack told me that work begets work. And, uh, you know, and, and he said it in another way, it was loyalty begets loyalty. And I, and I saw that the work begets more work. And I, so I just started, I started, I started doing yard work for family, for neighbors. I just did anything while I was on the computer trying to find out, uh, you know, how to get a job, filling out a resume. And I was rejected left and right, you know, and, uh, and it was kind of, it, there was kind of, it was turmoil because I'd, I I was wanted to find out where my kid was, where Jenny was, come to find out she had ended up in prison and didn't know where my kid was. So, you know, there was a whole lot of things swirling in those, those early days, but I was, Jack Brown's cleaners here in Austin was kind enough to give me a chance. And, uh, and so I worked unbuttoning shirts, you know, I humble myself to this is what it is. You know, I'm, I had much worse jobs in prison. It's just what it is. I didn't think about what I used to do or how much money I used to make. I was grateful for this $8 an hour, just unbuttoning thousands of shirts. And, you know, that's what I did, you know, and one thing leads to another. And so um, what do you think or do to keep yourself grounded in what is? And because I would think uh, that I would be fixated on what I lack, what I need, and what I want. Yeah, yeah. So the constant, the part that I can't put into words is the constant training of meditation. And then all day long, that meditation skill of that being lost in thought and returning to the breath, being lost, returning. You know, fundamentally what that is, is consciousness is identified with the default mode network or it's in task positive connected to the body. It's in the present moment or it's lost. And so, you know, as you do your half hour, whatever you can do at meditation, you're training, you're beginning the day, you're starting with that to be lost and to notice you're lost and you return and you're like, and it's okay. And I still go through that today. I still go through that, you know, it's just probably I don't get lost as deep and I don't stay lost as long, but I still have to use my mind. I, I live in the relative world. I have to do these things, you know, and the, the easiest reminder would be things that aren't lightness or ease. When I feel tension, when I feel stressed, you know, when I feel these things, I, I can usually trace it back to a perception or a story, you know, a story that I believe so much. It's like a filter that I'm seeing the world through. 
uh, I, I can see that. I can reverse engineer it and go, oh, I caught up again, come back and see it and be kind with it. You know, I, I, I do want to make a distinction. There's still pain. Uh, you know, it, the Buddha taught that, the, the, you know, pain is inevitable, right? In this life, it, it, it is a hallmark of our existence, sickness, old age, and death, you know, and, um, and, and I still have that. I recently broke up with one of the loves of my life. You know, there's still pain in my life. I'm by no means as this happily ever after, but I don't have to live in the suffering. I don't have to continue that pain that is a part of our existence. I don't have to carry it on by the woulda, coulda, shouldas and the constant rehashing of it because I'm a primate that loves movies. I'm identified with movies, whether they're in my head or on a screen. I watch a sad movie, I get sad. And so, you know, the pain is going to be there. And when I process through that, then the rest is how my mind just continually brings it up. That's suffering. And so the training shows us how to eliminate suffering at its root cause. And so when you went to these AA meetings and you're sharing Mm-hmm. what you had learned and and knew and people are encouraging you to pursue an education get pell grants uh-huh. and share what you're sharing with them what do you think that they saw in you that you had not previously seen in yourself well i didn't realize that i had such a great understanding that i had been that what i have been doing every single day reading through countless books you know reading through countless books that's all i did to the detriment of my eyes to having to go through reading glasses stronger and stronger is probably because i was in my 40s too uh, you know that I didn't realize that I had such a grasp of uh, uh, of the the teachings. You know, and um, and I'm, by no means do I. I'm, I'm not a Buddhist. I don't claim to be. I I, I teach uh, a secular version of that. You know, because I I'm, keep it very clinical, right? But I have a I guess I had a deeper understanding than I knew, and I and I knew how to put it into action. Right. And so when I say read a book, I don't mean just read it through one time. And I've probably read Power of Now maybe 50 to 100 times. I still have the original copy here and the spine is broken off. One of them has, you know, electrical tape <laughs> taped all through it. I mean, I read these things daily because I wanted to understand every single concept and see how it applied in my life. I really, really studied it. It wasn't just a reading of it, you know, so. So after integrating Tole's books and, and everything mm-hmm. else you're reading and you go to school, what was that experience like in, in the classroom? Yeah, that was, uh, that was weird going, being back in school with a bunch of uh, younger people and I'm in my mid 40s. You know, and I haven't stepped class and, in, in, you know, stepped foot in a class in 25 or something years. Uh, so it was interesting and it was kind of shocking, uh, you know, because I never really, never really paid attention in school. And, uh, and this time I cared and, 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 you know, I, I did real well. It was just below a 4.0, you know, I, I really, you know, it was addictions counseling and I, I really liked it, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, it, it was fascinating to me. So, and so then, we talked at one point about you doing a practicum or training inside oh, yeah. TDCJ, right? Yes, yes, I did. 
And so yeah, what so, was that experience like? That was kind of crazy. So um, I had been working at a, a treatment facility called The Last Resort out in Smithville uh, while going to school. So I was working there third shift and going to school in the daytime. And I, I kept that up for about uh, almost two years. And, uh, and towards the end there, I needed to do my practicum, which is where you go and, and work with actual drug counselors. And I couldn't get a spot anywhere, but there was a place, uh, uh, the Kyle unit, which is a safe P. It's a, you know, an in-prison therapeutic community right. uh, where they send nonviolent drug offenders. And so, well, I thought, well, they'll, you know, maybe I can try there. And so I had to, uh, I, I applied and then I was honest with them. I'm still on parole. So they sent me out. Uh, I had to go do uh, a, a class out um, in Navasota, you know, uh, so Huntsville was aware that uh, of my situation. Uh, and they said, you know, if if you do come across anybody, you know, then we, we want them to be on the east side and you'd be on the west wing. Right. And so uh, and that started happening, you know, probably every other week. Uh, oh, wow. it, it was kind of weird because there I am, you know, uh, suit and tie with a name badge on. I'm the laws, you know, as they would call it. You know, and then I would see somebody, you know, uh, there's a guy that used to cut my hair. There's a guy on my work crew and, you know, and th they would see me and they would have a kind of a puzzled look. But then, you know, because there's so many faces in that system. And then I'd be like, hey, so and so. And they're like, what? <laughs> you know, you know, now we get to sh talk with them for a second and stuff before I would have to say, you know, I had to they'd have to go to the other side of the the uh, building. But and sometimes I wouldn't even notice it until, uh, you know, uh, I, I would do an assessment. I would I remember one time I was an hour into the assessment before I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I, know oh you. I was like, gosh. you worked in HROM. It was like I worked in HROM. I used to, you know, the, the regional manager. I was like, I know, you know, we're like, wow. You know, I was an hour into it before I recognized you know, this guy lived a couple bucks down. Yeah. So it was kind of it was kind of weird. It was so, a real moment. So how did the practicum impact you in terms of doing your work there? Yeah, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, it, it, that's where I first started to get my voice, you know, uh, I, I started to teach. I don't teach in the traditional ways. I don't, I don't follow a traditional 12-step model or anything, although what I teach is very much compatible with 12-step. It's very much uh, reliance on something greater than the self, the psychology, right? And so, but I don't, uh, I don't teach out of the cookie cutter uh, fashion. And, and, you know, I was grateful that they let me kind of find my voice there, uh, as well as the last resort. They, they allowed me to, uh, to find my voice and, uh, and teach what I knew and, and how I knew, you know, to relate it to people. And so I was capturing their attention and they, uh, you know, and the fact they knew I was one of them, they always were on the edge of their seats, you know, they were very much interested you know, because I was one of them, you know, I wasn't one of these highly educated people that didn't know what they were going through. You know, I was one of them. So when you talk to people, how do you describe your voice and how it has become so effective? I would say I, I, I'm very authentic. I try to just be myself. You know, I, I don't try to be a buttoned up counselor. Uh, I, I'm not afraid of disclosure. I'm not afraid to show my weak spots. Uh, I'm not afraid to show who I am. Uh, and what I do is I take some very complicated uh, parts of neuroscience and complicated parts of Eastern philosophy and experiential stuff. And, and I make that very much understandable. And I walk my clients through it step by step by step. 
you know, and um, I do that. And then I keep, I keep them engaged with the curriculum and stuff like that between sessions. So uh, I guess, you know, I really don't know. <laughs> All I can do is just relay what I know, you know, and try to be as personable as possible. And so for somebody who's struggling with uh, addiction or substance abuse, what would you tell somebody you're talking to for the first time in terms of what the path is or Mm -hmm. how they can get out of that? Sure, sure, sure. So, you know, it all depends on the set, uh, you know, in the, I guess the setting, right? Is this person detoxed? Is this person still using? So it's always changed up and custom to what's actually happening. You know, a lot of times I'm dealing with people that are still high and I don't mind doing that, but that's a different approach than the, somebody that's in rehab or just got out of rehab or somebody that's had a lot of 12-step experience and keeps failing and can't get it. And, you know, so I can approach them a little bit more custom to each, um, you know, and through my many years of chronic relapsing, I get it. I can understand. But, you know, when I start off, uh, I start off... It, my first session with them after the assessment is um, I call it the uh, it's the, the basics. Right. And, um, and that is where I work them through experientially to examine the relationship with their mind. I take a sample thought uh, and they give me a sample thought. And then I start querying them on how, who said that thought, who heard that thought. (laughs) Right. And then I, I start to talk to them about the nature of their thoughts. Like, tell me your next three thoughts. Do you know what your next thought's going to be? And I start showing them experiential. I'll go through like four or five to 10 different points about how the human brain is creating the mind and how you're staying in this hypnotic relationship with it. Why that's so important, you know, and I explain why is that so important, you know, because we're having these 20 to 40,000 thoughts a day, upwards of 80% can be negative, Uh, upwards of 90% they say can be repetitive from earlier in the day or, you know, earlier in your life. You know, why is that so important? Well, every single relapse is a sober thought. And you swore you weren't going to do this on Monday or January. And then by Friday or July, you don't give a damn. And nothing changed except your mind. Your hair color didn't change. Your friends didn't change. Your job didn't change. You meant it with every cell in your body on Monday. And then by Friday, you don't give a damn, right? And to understand you are not drunk when you take that first drink. You're sober right? You were sober, just as sober as you were when you said you would never do it. And so I take them into that and show them this is the problem. This is how the mind is hijacking us, right? And it, and it gets a little bit trickier with addiction because we're dealing with the dopamine reward system, right? We're dealing with reward-based learning in the way the limbic system desires and it craves and it's disconnected from the prefrontal cortex, the logic. And I teach them how we can cope through that, what we can actually do. Because when we start, you know, if we have more than just a couple thoughts, that limbic system kicks in and it doesn't matter if it's the, the diaper money or your rent money, or you're going to lose your job or go to prison. We're going to surrender to that desire. And I teach them how they can, how they can actually spot this coming on and cope with it. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing is uh, just the other day, my wife brought home from Costco 
a uh, big plastic bin of chocolate covered almonds. And I find that I have a similar Crack. struggle <laughs> with yeah. those in the pantry. And I tell myself, I am not eating any of those. And then right. I get them and I sit down and I unscrew the top and I'm just like one after the, you know, multiple, just filling right. my face with them. Right. The, the craving for cocaine looks the exact same on the limbic system as it does for sugar. Right. Because the dopamine reward system, we are, are naturally we are we are pre-wired to crave sugary, high calorie foods. That's from, you know, hundreds of thousands of years back because it does pack on the pounds and you might live through winter. Right. There, and it's very rare before agriculture that you're going to come upon a fruit tree in bloom. And yet you're encouraged biologically to eat that from how good that feels. Right. And so that craving, it, it's playing on that same process. You swear you're not going to do it, and then you find yourself automatically surrendering to the desire. That's not unlike uh, the heroin cravings, just much stronger because of the amount of dopamine that is received from the narcotics drives the importance of the craving. So you're 52 years old right now. You, you've got a successful counseling practice of your own, right? Yes, sir. And so when you look in the mirror, what do you say to yourself now about who Chris is? Yeah, I try not to buy into that either, right? I try not to, I, I try not to buy in because that's that mental construct, you're right? If anything, I'm like, what the hell is happening? Where did this crank come from? What's going on with this double chin? What is this? You know, what in the hell is gravity and time doing to this body? Yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I do my best not to buy into that, either the good stories or the bad stories, because when you buy into that, inevitably you're buying into the system of belief and your mind's going to angle it towards the negative. So do, do, does it feel good? I get people telling me I saved their lives. I have all these wonderful reviews on my website or Facebook, whatever. That's great and all, but I, I really don't want, you know, I don't want to construct an ego that that inflates. I know the danger of that. Uh, I, you know, probably the most awkward thing is all the the, the praise and the, the, you know, people thanking me. That was probably the hardest for me to learn how to take, you know. And so, I, of course, I don't want to be rude. I say thank you. I appreciate it. But honestly, I want that to just fly right through me. That It doesn't matter. It's the next right thing that I need to do. That's it. You know, and and so what has you passionate about serving others with your counseling gifts? Cause and effect, cause and effect, karma, cause and effect. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, I did, I was raised uh, Southern Baptist, and so I I thought this forgiving and stuff was for weak people, this turning the other cheek. Was loving people. I was like, thought, you know, I had it wrong. Jesus was on to something, right? I, I, I had it. I had learned it wrong, and so I, I have come to find out that, you know, that me, by me trying to love every person unconditionally that sits in front of me, give them my best, I receive the best cause and effect back in my life. Period. It just works that way. Do I still have struggles? Sure. Am I perfect? No way right? I, I'm still human, right? And the universe keeps growing me by putting new challenges in front of me. But um, yeah, it's cause and effect that, that, that this is the most skillful thing I could do with my time, you know, is to help other people. And by helping other people, the universe just showers good luck, you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, it just keeps coming back to me. So I really experienced that 
beautiful cycle of reciprocity or greater return when we we give and contribute. Um, I'm always amazed at what I get in return. Yeah, it is amazing. Yes, yes, yeah. And I, you know, I really, I have no idea where the future is going to go. I kind of have, I kind of angle it, you know, and I, you know, I, I always used to say when, before, you know, in my old life, I would, I would etch my plans on stone. And, and these days I, I write them on post-it notes and when the wind comes, it blows them away. And that's cool. <laughs> we write a new plan and there we go. You know, I just try not to stay too attached to it, you know? And so, um, what do you find yourself uh, grounded in these days in terms of your existence in life? Hmm. Yeah, I'm. You know, I have a, a passion for this uh, for non-dual awareness. This, um, you know, uh, this secular version of this waking up or this enlightenment uh, in the practice, and and really trying to refine. Um, living in the body as consciousness and not as this constructed ego and, you know, cooking dinner, you know, by myself and, 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 and preparing a beautiful meal that nobody else is going to see, not snapping a picture of it for Facebook and just being with the moment, listening to the cool music. I got really cool mood lighting all over the apartment, you know, just the, the simplicity of life. And, and then I'm kind of angling a little bit towards the future, uh, you know, but, I, but it, it could all change in a, in a moment's notice. So, you know, it's just the next right thing, you know? Yeah. Well, I, uh, you know, as we have talked I've just seen this light in you from before you were emancipated in your early teens and the creativity and intellect and entrepreneurship that led you uh, so many different places. And I just am so inspired and appreciative of you spending the time talking to me today. Thank you so much, Ed. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.